Good morning, church. It's so good to have you guys with us today. Uh, whether you're a part of Spring Hill or not, thank you for tuning in. And we hope that this morning as we worship together, it is uh, edifying, beneficial, and that God just lavishes you with blessing. You know, we're distant and this is not normal. It feels strange probably to a lot of us, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we gather, just be reminded that our God is not bound by four walls that we call a church building. And so this morning as we gather and as we worship, man, I just, my prayer has been that God would lead your heart to worship, that you and that I both would just get out of our own way and that we would make much of Jesus together. And so if this is your first time sort of gathering with us at Spring Hill, uh, we just welcome you. Thanks for, for choosing to do this with us. I pray that this is beneficial for all people involved and that uh, it would be something that ignites a fire within you and in the hearts of your family as well. You know, I didn't plan, or I guess I planned to do this. I just didn't tell them I was going to. Uh, James and Joel are here in the room with me and they're the ones that are doing the magic, all right? And that they are you know, behind the camera making me laugh right now. And uh, James does production things and all the graphics you'll see, that's all of them. I'm not near talented enough to do that. And so I'm giving them some, some affection and some praise publicly so that you would give them some praise privately. Uh, just know that they are a huge part and that they're serving you guys even though they're the silent heroes, okay? Uh, I want you to know, to know that so that you can celebrate their work in, in ways that you can't see. Uh, we'll get into things here in a moment and then begin the Word, uh, looking at the Word and let us study it and that it would you know, enrich our souls. We'll start that in a moment after we pray. Before we do, I want to remind you guys of just a couple of announcements and updates. Uh, you may already know some of these things, but if not, then just listen and uh, make sure that these things become part of your, your identity, even though uh, we're far apart and the church isn't gathering. We want you to know that the church is still doing things. And so uh, some of the things I want you to be aware of, that first of all, uh, we have frequent updates that go out via email. And if you don't, aren't already uh, receiving those emails, send us a personal message either on Facebook or you can email me at springhillpastorcaleb at gmail.com and we'll make sure that you're added to the email list so that whenever those pieces of information go out that you're included in that and that you kind of know some of the things that are going on uh, in the life of our church. Also, you know, continue to serve one another and be the church even when we're sort of outside of our building. That means pray for one another and, and lift up one another with a call or a text message. We need to bind together in difficult times. And so let this be a season where we're the church, even though we're not able to gather in the same way that we normally would. One way that you can continue to be the church is to continue to certainly pray, but also to give financially. And so uh, some of you guys are already doing that by mail. Some people have come to me and just dropped off an envelope and said, this is my, my tithe and my offering. We want you to continue to do that and be faithful in that. And so please, please be faithful. God's church functions because God's church is faithful. And so please continue to do that. We're also hoping in the very near future, uh, and maybe even by Sunday morning, whenever you hear this, to be unrolling online giving. And so more details will be coming uh, in the days to come as that becomes a reality for us. I know that will make it easier for some of you, myself included. So please uh, just kind of be patient with us as we unroll some online giving opportunity. Also, during our midweek Bible studies, you know, those are going to be going on on Wednesday nights uh, around 6 o'clock, Facebook Live. We'll be looking at just a short message from God's Word. Uh, that'll be, like I said, during the week Wednesday night at 6-ish. Uh, and then finally, stick around at the very end of uh, our time this morning. There'll be a graphic that displays some discussion questions that was on there last week, and I'll kind of explain what that is. This message is not meant to be listened to alone. This is something for your family or for you and your roommates or whoever it is that's in your life that we want this to be something that is edifying and beneficial for us corporately, even though we are scattered. And so use these discussion questions over lunch or dinner or just sitting around after you get done listening and grow in the word together. 
Dads, fathers, husbands, and heads of household, this is a great opportunity for you to be discipling the people under your roof. Uh, you know, we can't gather together and they may not be able to have a Sunday school teacher or have a small group leader, but they have you. And so invest in the people in your home and this, these discussion questions are a great way to do that. So uh, I want to remind you one thing before we jump in, and that is that, you know, God's word says that his mercies are new every morning. God's word also says, John tells us that it's the spirit who gives life, that the flesh is of no help at all. The reason I say that is that we are at the mercy of our Lord if this time together will breathe life into our souls. And so let's go and pray to God and ask him that this morning would be beneficial for us. All right, let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, that you would use this morning in your word to instruct us, guide us, challenge us, and encourage us. We thank you for our church. Thank you that you have brought us together for this purpose this morning. Whether we belong to a specific body or another body, or that we are just seeking kind of what this is all about, this Jesus thing, or maybe we just stumbled upon this link and chosen to watch. I pray, Lord, that you would minister perfectly to the needs of every single individual partaking in this worship gathering today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You know, tragedy is never welcome, but its aftermath often brings with it a silver lining that builds up instead of just destroys. A bad grade sobers you to study harder. I've had several bad grades, especially in college, and whenever I got bad grades, it sobered me to teach myself a discipline that lasted a long time, and that was to study harder and make better grades. You miss a sales quota, perhaps you, you work in sales, and if you miss a quota, you then kind of begin to start some principles to Teach a discipline to yourself to work harder and be more diligent and more efficient with your time. Or maybe we think about something historical like Pearl Harbor or even something like 9-11 where the aftermath of those events and how tragic they certainly were, there was a silver lining where our often so divided United States became united, at least for a time. And then you think about our current situation in our culture, this COVID-19 virus. Already it's a crisis and already we see that this has the potential to be a massive tragedy, not just on the health of countless people, it already has been, but also on our economy and many other avenues of tragedy. Yet, it also can be used not just to destroy, but to build up. To bind God's people specifically, not to their occupation, not to their entertainment, not to their schedules, but rather to their Lord, to our Lord. Times of uncertainty, uproot, deep-seated feelings of independence from God. And so it is a gift of God to be reminded that you and I, listen, are not in control. Why is that a gift? Because dependence on Christ is our greatest advocate in times of trouble. We're going to examine a passage this morning that reminds us that when it's all said and done, the only believer's cries that will be heard are not of pain and sadness, but only the cries of worship of the Lamb of God. We see this in Revelation chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open there, okay? Revelation is the last book of your Bible, so it's at the very end. It's an easy one to find. Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Revelation 5. We're going to end up looking at all 14 verses Although we're not going to read it all at one time, we're going to kind of go bit by bit in verses 1 through 14, okay? 
So Revelation 5, let's start by reading verses 1 through 5. It says this, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The book of Revelation is written by the apostle John, and John wrote this while he himself was in exile on the island called Patmos late in his life. Revelation is a book that often scares people, and maybe it's one that you even have sort of avoided just because it's kind of confusing. It contains a lot of prophetic literature, and that can be sort of intimidating. And I'll be honest, I mean, before I started to really learn the scriptures in a new way and really be digging deeper in my studies of God's Word, Revelation was a scary book to me because I just didn't understand it. And a lot of symbolism and imagery just kind of gets confusing. But I'm going to tell you a very, very easy way to understand prophetic literature, which is what Revelation is. And also the guy's names that you can't understand at the end of your Old Testament, okay? One very easy way to understand prophetic literature is this. Live today in light of what is to come. That's at the center of all of the prophetic books of the Bible. To live today in light of what is to come. And every one of those authors are writing for that purpose. That they would convince their readers to live today in light of what God has shown them is to come. Specifically in Revelation, it's a prophecy of the end times. You probably already know that. Revelation was written by John to churches, seven of them in seven different cities in modern-day Turkey. And much is spoken of in these visions that God gives John throughout the book of Revelation. Now in chapter 5 specifically, John records his vision of a time when there will be this scroll. And I read about it just a moment ago. And it wasn't just a simple, you know, random scroll. It was a mighty scroll, one that held much significance. But this scroll was one that no one was found worthy to open. Look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll walk through this. We'll get to sort of, you know, our main points of emphases and things you can take notes on. Hopefully that's already started. We'll get to those main points in just a moment. Look at verses 1 and 2 first. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, listen to this, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now this scroll was in the right hand of the Father. There were mighty creatures and righteous elders at his side, and yet no one was worthy to open this scroll. Now why was this scroll such a big deal? By the way, there's a scroll emoji on your phone if you don't know what a scroll looks like, and it's like ancient time stuff. Just type in scroll in your iMessage, and you'll see it right there, or you could just Google it, okay? But this scroll is a significant scroll. It was unique. Why was this scroll such a big deal? Well, we could spend a lot of time in the details, but I'll summarize much of what John mentions in the chapters that follow it. The contents of this scroll were simply put, the culmination of the plans of God to bring final judgment on God's enemies and final salvation on God's 
people. Final judgment on his enemies and final salvation on his people. In ancient times, people used a scroll, especially for things like deeds of property. And so when a deed for property was written on a scroll, that scroll meant ownership. And whoever possessed that scroll said, this is like a title to a car, the way that we'd understand it. If you have the title to your vehicle, it signifies your ownership. And so a deed to property in ancient times was ownership of that property. It would often have not only the description of the property on the inside of the scroll, but on the outside of the scroll that was sealed would be just a brief description for filing purposes or just for general description of what was on the inside. It may say something like, this is a deed for this piece of land. And so on the outside, you would see that knowing without even looking at the contents, what is described on the inside of that scroll. The details would be on the inside. On the outside would be a, just a simple description like a book cover. You know, in our culture, we have something like this. When you go and read a book. A book I read when I was a kid was uh, The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Now, I remember that much of that book, but I have a feeling it's about an old man in a sea. Now, how do I know that? Because it's on the cover of the book. I, I know the contents without looking at the contents because of the cover. The same can be said of like Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. What's that book about? I'm just guessing here. I've never read it, I've seen the movie, but that's not to the point. It's probably about a guy named Harry Potter. There's probably a prisoner involved, and the prison's probably called Azkaban. Why do I know that? Because the title cover of the book tells me things about the contents of the book. The same is true here of this scroll, written within and on the outside. John can see the main idea of the contents without seeing the fullness of what is written within it. If the scroll were a property deed, like I mentioned a moment ago, and being able to open the scroll signified ownership, then the contents would be the final plans of the entire universe. It's God's plan for his created order. However, if no one can open it, then no one could finally put sin to death, could finally cast the evil one into the lake of fire, could finally rescue God's people, and could finally escort God's people into eternal glory. And so, because no one can open the scroll, John sees this vision that takes a devastating turn. And John is cast into hopeless fear and sadness because the most important plans of God for his people, for his creation, are seemingly now prohibited. It's a sad break in the story. And John is thrown into disarray. And so it's in light of that that I want to introduce two principles that we see in this passage for our title, which is the hope of an opened scroll. Number one is this. Hope puts fear and weeping in their place. Hope puts fear and weeping in their place. Last week when we studied the word, I introduced a concept about hope and that there's a difference between biblical hope and hope sort of in, in the world's terms. And we can use hope in, in multiple ways is what I mean by that. And so one way that we understand a hope is sort of like a, uh, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. I hope that it happens. There's a stool that we use at my house to stand, like a, like a little stepladder stool. Brooke and the kids use it, but every time I, it's, it's this little plastic thing and it unfolds and it's held together by these little panels. And so, listen, I'm not a, a huge guy, but I'm also not a tiny guy either. And when I stand on this thing, it's like I can audibly hear the stool screaming for help. Listen, I hope that that stool holds me up, but I'll be honest, it is only a hope. Because every time I get on it, I'm a little scared and I try my very best to mentally take pounds off so that this stool doesn't collapse underneath me. That is one way of understanding hope, but that's not a biblical understanding of hope. 
On the contrary, right now my allergies are going crazy. When you go outside and I look at my black car, I just see a coat of yellow on it. That's pollen and it is my greatest enemy. All right. Pollen is terrible because it just wreaks havoc on my insides and my sinuses go crazy. However, I hope for the day that pollen goes away, at least for like nine more months. Why? Because I know that that's a sure thing. That hope is a reality that will come to pass. It is my future hope that pollen will go away. That is a biblical understanding of the concept of hope. Hope is something that is a sure thing that is long anticipated. And so hope, in this instance, puts fear and weeping in its place. Our hope is sure. Now, what is our hope? Our hope is that God will permanently defeat our true greatest enemy, and that's sin. The entire story of the world hinges on God finally putting sin to death. And so in John's vision, he is faced with the perceived reality that the plan unfolding throughout all of human history is now in danger of falling apart. The problem here was that no one was worthy to open the scroll, which meant that God's plan of final rescue was seemingly stalled. Look at verses 3 through 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. They weren't worthy. Verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a beautiful just unfolding of the story. John is in disarray. He's discouraged. He is weeping. He is afraid because he has been struck with the presumed reality that all hope is lost. Then one of God's elders grabs him and says, weep no more. Behold. He then mentions a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, Listen now, we're not going to go to the details, but this is something that is anchored in Old Testament history, okay? Judah being one of the founding fathers of God's people, David being King David, through his lineage, one has come, a lion of Judah, a root of David. Who is that? It is Jesus, the Christ, Savior, King, Messiah. And he proves the grand narrative faithfulness of God. The elder then says, the reason why you don't have to weep. And that's that this Jesus has conquered. Now, slow down and say that because he speaks in past tense. Jesus has done something already. He has conquered past tense. Because of that, he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. Going back to the deed, the land deed analogy. He is the one who has ownership over its contents, the created order, the universe, the redemptive plans of God. Jesus is worthy. And therefore, he has ownership over what is supposed to happen next. I'm not going to read verses 6 through 8, but I'll summarize them. They get to some imagery that I don't want to confuse you, but it talks about the fact that this lion of Judah is then described as a lamb that is standing as one who has been slain. Now, I'm not sure what that means. You can look down and see that in the first, I think it's verses 6 and 7. It talks about a lamb standing as one who was slain. That's kind of weird. So the lamb has been killed, has been slaughtered, and yet it's standing 
And so maybe the description here is of Jesus with, with nail-marked hands or with, a, with scars on his head and with a gash in his side. I'm not really sure, but this lamb, the Christ, is standing there clearly having been put to death already. He then grabs the scroll from the hand of the Father who is seated on the throne, and these creatures and these elders fall on their faces because he is worthy. He is the one that is worthy to grab the scroll and to unfold it. Why? Because, as the elder said in verse 5, he, past tense, has conquered. Well, then that brings the question, has conquered what? What has Christ conquered? We see this in verses 9 and 10. They fall on their faces, and 9 and 10 it says, And they sang a new song, saying, listen to this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Isn't that beautiful? He has conquered. Has conquered what? He has conquered the grave. He has conquered sin, and he has conquered death. It is the good news of the gospel. They proclaim this song and they say that you have, he has ransomed his people for God. The word ransomed is one of my favorite in the Bible. You know what that means, ransomed? I, I, I used to watch a lot of you know, kid movies and stuff, and sometimes like uh, somebody would be kidnapped or captured, and then someone would demand a ransom. They cut out the little letters of the magazine, and they say, here are my demands, pay this amount of money, and then you would get this person back. It's a ransom note, right? And so they pay this amount and they set free the person that they have kidnapped or captured. Maybe more pertinently, we think about a prisoner and the payment that is given so that that prisoner could be set free. It's a great analogy for the truth of the gospel. You and I have a dungeon master. We are imprisoned by someone, rather, something. And that commonality that joins us together in imprisonment is called sin. We're slaves to sin. We come into this world having fallen short of the glory of God, and yet God intervened for the prisoner. He paid a ransom to rescue the prisoner. He paid his own life, the wages of sin being death. He laid down his life so that we could be joining him in righteousness. It is the good news of the gospel. And because of his ransom payment, he has purchased for himself the prisoner. Notice it says ransomed for God. Because of the conquering power of Jesus, he is truly worthy to exact God's plan to open the scroll. He opens, he holds ultimate dominion over the entire created order, calling back to what we mentioned a moment ago, to both judge and to save. So that brings to mind a principle that I want you to see. John's weeping, and we can include in that the pains and the the anguish of God's church, that John's weeping and his fear and his anguish are put in their proper place. And that's this, that they will one day end. Your pain, your weeping, your anguish, there will come a day when those things are finally vanquished. You know, ever since a couple of weeks ago, when the coronavirus measures and COVID-19 measures really began to ramp up, I'm a big NBA basketball fan. They canceled the NBA or suspended the NBA season. And that's when I was like, okay, this, this thing is, is real, right? 
And ever since then, things have been far more drastically changing and, and the numbers are piling up of people that have been impacted. And so ever since then, I've been, and probably you have been too, sort of fighting a daily wrestling match between wisdom and fear, right? I want to be wise, and so I want to be careful. I want to be loving to my neighbor through this, and the most loving thing that I can do for my neighbor is to not be around them, to not infect them if I may be carrying something that I don't know about. And so I want to be wise, okay? I want to be loving to the people around me. I want to be careful, and yet I'm not called to live my life in fear. And so I want to combat feelings of fear. I don't want to be afraid of my health or the health of my parents or of my children. I don't want to be afraid of the impact on our economy. But God's Word makes it very clear that there is no need to be afraid. The heart of the believer has no place for lasting permanent fear. There need be no discouragement. Why? Because of what John discovered in the comfort of the elder when he broke into hopeless weeping, that no fear must be had because Jesus is the victor and that he reigns over any virus or government or unemployment or financial crisis. A couple of passages that have been so encouraging through this. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then Philippians 1 verses 20 and 21 have been so wonderful. Paul is saying that my hope is that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Listen, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What do we have to fear, church? Death is dead. What do we have to fear? Nothing. Death is dead. No one then wants to willingly be put in harm's way. Certainly that would be foolish. But we also shouldn't tremble and be fearful in the face of any danger that this world may bring. We need not fear a virus or an economic crisis because the church and the gospel and our King Jesus are unstoppable and God is ultimate and he is sovereign. Is it scary? Of course this can be scary. Will this virus take its toll? Yeah, more than likely. Will it hit you right at home? It possibly could. But in the moments of great trial are the moments of Christ followers' greatest exhibitions of faith. And it's been that way for a very, very long time. There is no peril that can threaten the gospel. And so let us pray primarily, not that God would keep us free from trial, but that God would grow our faith in all circumstances. Hope of an open scroll. The first way that we see that is that hope puts fear and weeping in their place. The second way is this, that it prompts us to join the anthem today that will be proclaimed forever. To join the anthem today that will be proclaimed forever. You know, a moment ago we looked at verse 9 and it says that we've been ransomed. You're worthy because you ransomed yours for God. I want to highlight that last part though. That we are ransomed for God. We see this in verse 9. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
you know, you, I'm, I'm assuming that you are a part of Spring Hill, but there are many of you that are listening to this now that aren't uh, a part of our church. And so I want to let you know that one of the things that we talk about frequently at Spring Hill is that, you know, when we ask ourselves the questions, why did Jesus come to this world? Why did he step into flesh? Why did God come to this world in the person of Jesus? Why did he do that? Well, the simple answer for that is to die for our sins. And that wouldn't be a completely wrong answer, but I would also argue that's not a completely right answer. Certainly it's right in most of ways, but I think it's very clear that the ultimate reason that Jesus stepped from light into this dark world, certainly to save us from our sins, but more importantly, Jesus stepped into flesh for his glory. First in his mind, we love to think it was us. Certainly he had us in mind when he stayed on that cross and suffered and died that we could have life. But Jesus came into this world primarily for the glory of God. And the reason I say that is that's what that means. We're ransomed people for God, for his glory. In John's vision, he immediately sees in the eternal destiny of all of the created order, you and I included, including those ransomed for God. And I want you to just slow down and look at these next verses because they are amazing. I can't paint the picture, but just look with me at verses 11 through 14. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads, that means countless and countless, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a picture. What a picture. I cannot fathom this picture that has been painted by John. One thing that we know for sure is that back in verse 9, that this is included in this created order, are people from every tribe and language and people and nation. What a picture. Four celestial creatures, 24 elders of God, countless, he says myriads of angels, every creature in sky and sea, on land, saying, shouting, singing God's praises. But why is this important for us, church? I think part of it's self-evident. But I want you to see that there is a chorus that has already begun that we need only join in on. Heaven is not meant to be a dwelling place of the future only, but is to be our desire right now in the present. Like when we we examined the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus prayed, he gave, gave his disciples the, the sort of prototypical prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we know about in Matthew 6, one of the parts of his prayer that he prayed to the Father was, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is my paraphrase for that. The word will means your desire. Your desire be done now on earth as it is already and will be done in glory in heaven. Here's what that means. Church, don't wait to join in the anthem in the name of the Lamb who was slain, to proclaim to Him in your everyday honor 
and glory and might and all of the list of things that you saw just a moment ago when we read. What this means is, church, your anthem, my anthem should be this. Father, make your desire in heaven my desire right now. That's our anthem. Make your desire my desire. And the goal of that is for your glory. I've been ransomed for God. And so let that be my anthem, my desire, be your desire. That your anthem as you rise from your pillow will be that your life would reflect the desire of God for your life. Your anthem as you hit the pillow is a reflection in saying, God, I apologize and I forgive me. I'm confessing the ways that I did not link up with your desire for my life today. Help me tomorrow to do better at that, to be sanctified in that way. It means that this is the anthem of your home with your children. It means that this is the anthem of your marriage. It means that this is the anthem of your finances. This is the anthem of you being a loving and forgiving friend. It's the anthem of you whenever you are aggravated. Your anthem whenever you are sad. It's your anthem whenever you are hurting. And what is that anthem? You are ransomed for God. Join the chorus of the angels, of all of the creatures that we'll be having for all eternity. Join that now. Father, all things for your glory, for your might, for your honor. Make your desire my desire. You know, as I said earlier, the book of Revelation can be intimidating. And unfortunately, we can shy away from it because it's a little intimidating. But it can also be encouraging when we feel that the world is falling apart. Some of us may feel like that right now. And your world may be, figuratively, you're already kind of feeling some of the, the pressure and the heat of that. That your circumstances are sort of starting to fall apart. And that stress is really starting to settle in. And anxiety is really starting to settle in. Or sadness or grief or pain. And your world is starting to feel like it's maybe falling apart a little bit. I think that this word in Revelation can be of great encouragement for us. I'll go back to the proper way to read prophetic literature. To live today in light of what is to come. There will come a day when tears of grief will become tears of joy, when shouts of pain will become shouts of praise. In the turmoil of life, be reminded of the ending of the story. The lamb who was slain is worthy to open the scroll and finally finish the job of defeating sin and rescuing his own. There's an anthem of praise that's already going. Church, let us join in the anthem today. Let's pray. Father, you are wonderful. You are mighty and mighty to be praised. Lord, humble us whenever we are sad and brokenhearted. Help us to be mindful of the hope that we have in Christ. That when it's all said and done, you are worthy to open the scroll and that you sit on a throne of glory and honor and praise. Father, may your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let our desire link up with your desire for our lives. Father, I pray that, I know that there are people that are listening to this right now that aren't part of the church, that they are casually listening to this message, maybe on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or some other time because it's, it's anonymous, and they were just curious as to what this was all about. Father, my prayer right now is that you would pierce into the heart 
of the people watching this that have never come to a point where they place their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, this isn't some reveal that this isn't some magical fairy tale or some fake religious hocus-pocus that we're recognizing. This is faith in the only being that can restore what has been so permanently, seemingly broken. Lord, I pray that you would mend the hearts of the brokenhearted, that you would reconcile people to you. Only, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus, the one worthy, the Lamb who is slain. Amen. Guys, thank you for, for joining us this morning. Uh, our prayer is always that God would use his word to make much of himself and certainly to use it for our benefit. Uh, don't be, uh, you know, always be mindful, uh, obviously, that uh, we want to make our desire God's desire. And also uh, be mindful of some of the things I mentioned before we began today, which is uh, continue to support your church prayerfully and financially. Uh, continue to, to pray for one another and lift up one another's needs. Text one another, call one another, encourage each other in, in a difficult time. Everybody's going through a tough time right now and certainly a good chance for all of us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to those around us. All right. Um, this week, join us midweek Bible study. We're going to do it on Wednesday night again. Uh, so that's all, I, all I've got today. I pray that uh, this has been encouraging. If you need anything this week, reach out to me. I would love to make myself available to you in any way that I can. All right. Uh, Y'all have a great day. Be blessed. I love you and I'll see you next time.